Good morning. It is great for us to be back at Christ Church. It's been about 15 years since you all first sent us out to the field. Um, and today, as we're back, we're talking about our goals, uh, the things we're hoping for, striving after. In, in the big picture, we all have some sense of what it would mean to reach the promised land, and we all want to get there. Now, if you're a Christian, then you know that the promised land is God's presence, the fullness of relationship with him. That is what we're supposed to be seeking after. And probably many here are. And probably some here aren't. And probably some here aren't sure. Maybe you know that you should be. Maybe you want to be. And then you hear Jesus say things like, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And you look at your own heart and you don't know quite what to make of your condition. Probably some of you came to church this morning because you want to meet with God. You want to hear from his word. There's a good chance that, that many came because there's people you want to see. You want to be a part of the community. Um, some probably came because you know you should, but really your thoughts are elsewhere. At this point in time, you started to wait for the sermon to end, and then you know there'll probably be one last song, and then the benediction, and then you're free. And the chances are good that there are folks in this room who fit every one of those descriptions. But there's no way you can look at the person in the seat next to you and know which description fits them. And many of us may not even be sure which description fits us. And here we find a danger. Simply by being around those who are seeking the promise of God, it's easy to feel that everybody is seeking God's promises. Until, of course, it becomes obvious that someone is not, and you hear the stories. Maybe a husband and wife have been attending church for years, and then one day the husband just stops coming. He says, I am done wasting my only day off. This is not how I want to spend my Sundays. Or a young woman goes off to college, and she had always been a faithful member of the youth group, but now she's been in college for two years, and if you looked at her life, there was no way you could guess that she was even professing to be a Christian. There, there is a danger that we are exposed to simply by virtue of being a part of the church. I'll call it the danger of proximity. Keith Green once famously said, going to McDonald's does not make you a hamburger. And he was saying, you can be in the church, but not be in the church. You can think you're headed toward the promised land, when in reality you are headed in a different direction entirely. And so from time to time, it is worth it to pause and to ask ourselves, where are we headed? And that's really what our passage today is about. And we're going to learn three different things. We will learn about the danger of being in close proximity to God's promise. We'll, we'll learn about the main obstacle we face that prevents us from seeking after his promise. And then finally, we'll learn about the way forward. And in all of it, what we learn is that in order to pursue the promise of God, you must see its exclusive abundance. So let's read the passage, and then we'll get started. Genesis 13. Um, Abram had already gone to the promised land, and then there was a famine in the land, so he had had to go down to Egypt. Then Pharaoh kicks him out of Egypt, and that's where we find ourselves now. He says, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. 
Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we're brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south and east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. Okay, so first, verses 1 to 7, the danger of proximity to God's promise. Now, he said in chapter 12, Abram had gone down to Egypt to escape a famine, meaning he temporarily left the promised land. And then by the end of that chapter, Pharaoh has kicked him out, and so he has to find a new place to settle. Verses 3 and 4 tell us that Abram went back to the place he had been before. You say, well, okay, where is that exactly? And I don't so much mean where on a map, but where within the thought world of Genesis is this? Now, very quickly, if you have a Bible open, glance with me, and if not, just, just listen to where we've seen since the beginning of chapter 12. In the beginning of chapter 12, God calls Abram to leave his land and go to a land that he will show him. And that word land becomes immensely significant in the rest of the Abraham narrative. Now, the word itself is not special. It can mean land or earth in English. So in Genesis 1, when God creates the heavens and the earth, that's the word that's used. But the author of Genesis is going to fill this word with meaning. So really quickly, we're just going to look through every use of the word land from the moment God calls Abram at the start of chapter 12. We already saw the first two in the first verse. Later in chapter 12, verse 5, it says they set out to go to the land of Canaan, and then they come to the land of Canaan. That is the land God promised. Verse 6, Abram passes through the land. The Canaanites are living in the land. Same thing. Verse 7, God appears and promises to give the land to Abram's offspring. What land? The land of Canaan, the promised land. And then we get down to verse 10, and we read there's a famine in the land, so Abram goes to Egypt because the famine was severe in the land. And did you notice something there? The author uses the word land twice in verse 10, but only of the promised land, not of Egypt. And that pattern will continue. In verse 11, they're about to enter Egypt. In verse 14, they do enter Egypt. In verse 1 of our chapter, they go up from Egypt. And over and over again, in other parts of Genesis, the author will speak of the land of Egypt. Even in our own passage in verse 10, Lot will use that expression. We'll talk about the significance of that later. But all through this section, the narrator is incredibly careful to never refer to anything as the land except for the promised land. Meaning in the thought world of Genesis, there is only one land, the land of Canaan. 
So Abram has returned to the place he was at first. He's returned to the place that God sent him. Where is that? It's the land, the promised land. And that's good. It seems like things are back on track, but not everything is as it appears. The, the focus of the narrative now widens to actively consider Lot as well as Abram. And you see in verse 5 that Lot's been tagging along, and that's how it's been for him from the beginning. Back in chapter 12, when Abram departs for the promised land, we're simply told that Lot goes with him. And then in the next verse, we're told Abram took Lot. Lot's listed with the rest of Abram's baggage. In, in the beginning of our passage, it says Abram went up from Egypt and Lot with him. Lot doesn't even get a verb in the original there. He's just with Abram. And again, in verse 5 of our passage, the author emphasizes that Lot went with Abram, meaning at every step along the way, every time Lot is mentioned, his presence is described as secondary and accompanying. He is there because Abram is there. So in verse 5, Lot's in the land, but is he really in the land? Does he see the greatness of God's promises? We're about to find out. Because we're told in verses 6 and 7 that Abram and Lot can no longer live together. They need to separate. Now, they can both stay in the land. That's not the problem. They just can't be right on top of each other. The grazing's not sufficient for their flocks unless they have a little bit of distance. Meaning, the problem is not them both being in the land. The problem is them being together. Which means that condition that has defined Lot's life up till now, of being with Abram, is about to end. And here we reach a little mini-narrative crisis, because to this point, everything that Lot has done has been determined by his uncle, Abram. Wherever Abram goes, Lot goes. He's described in the same way as Abram's tents and herds, and that is about to change. And when it does, we see what Lot is really seeking after. But up to this point in the story, it is impossible to tell where Lot stands in relation to the promise of God. The, the narrator has intentionally left it ambiguous. And that is a dangerous condition to be in. It's not necessarily bad. Sometimes it's unavoidable, even appropriate. But it is dangerous. I, I grew up as an atheist. At the age of 16, I had never set foot in a church. Nobody would have mistaken me for a Christian. I knew I was not one. Everybody else knew too. Now, that's not the upbringing that I desire for my kids. It's not what God calls us to do as believing parents. But it did make my situation clear. And it protected me from a kind of ambiguity that exists when I think about my own children. All our kids go to church. They come with their mom and me. And I'm glad they do. It's good that they're with us, but would they come without us? And of course, this is so much bigger than just going to church. See, at their age, they shouldn't have to, but one day they will. And this isn't only true in regard to the things of God. It's true in our daily lives as well. So, for example, living overseas, we see a lot of couples move overseas, or you see people here that move from a, another country or from a different part of this country, and maybe their jobs bring them. Maybe it was a desire to serve. And sometimes you can tell when a couple moves that both of them are in it. They might be doing totally different things, but both the husband and the wife are fully engaged. Both of them are here. But sometimes it's not like that. Sometimes it seems that one of them has come and the other is simply with them. Now, 
don't misunderstand me, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes someone gets married to another person who maybe works for a big international company or they're in the military or the State Department or they're an athlete, and maybe it's not what they would have done if they were single, but they go into the relationship with their eyes wide open and they decide that it's worth it. They recognize what they're signing up for. They know they're going to move some, and their spouse recognizes what they're asking their husband or wife to give up. There's understanding and communication and agreement. But sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes one person is just plowing forward, totally oblivious to the extent that their spouse is not with them in the endeavor. The other spouse feels like baggage along for the ride, because to a great extent, they are baggage along for the ride. And so tension builds. They're, they're in the same place physically, but not mentally. They're, they're seeking after different things. Listen, being with others is not bad. It's good. It's natural. It is a part of how we're built. We do things together. We spur each other on. M many times, we only get to the place we should go because somebody else brings us. Many come to know God because they were initially tagging along with someone who already knew him. It's not that Lot's position as with Abram is bad. It's that it's insufficient. And even more, it's ambiguous, and in that, it can be dangerous. Being with someone who is committed to something gives the impression that you are committed to. And maybe you are. Or maybe being with them will make you to be so. But maybe you're not. And it's tough to tell. That's the danger. Our, our first section shows us that there is an ambiguity, a danger that comes simply from being in close proximity to the promises of God. And that brings us down to verses 8 to 13. And here in our second section, we find the obstacle that prevents us from choosing the promises of God. So we said Abram and Lot need to separate. Abram says, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. Now what land? The land of Canaan. The, the promised land. And do you notice it doesn't even occur to Abram when he asked the question that Lot might choose to leave the land. This is a remarkable moment in Lot's life. It is a critical juncture. Uh, for a man who has spent his entire life with someone else is about to be on his own. This is a big decision. Living in a communal culture, this is probably the first truly significant decision that Lot will make in his entire life. And you see how Lot thinks about it in verse 10. We read, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. You see, Lot is a shrewd businessman. He's asking a question that businessmen constantly ask. How can I maximize my wealth and security. If, if his flocks are going to continue to grow, he needs more fertile land. And he's right. The land of Canaan was arid. Living there limits the potential size of his herds. If he really wants to grow his business, then the Jordan Valley is better. You see, he is looking for the fulfillment of his desires, and he finds it in the Jordan Valley. To him, he says, that's like returning to the Garden of Eden. It's like the land of Egypt along the Nile, well-watered and fertile. He didn't want to be in the promised land. He only ended up there because he was with Abram. He would rather return to Egypt. He says, that is some good land. Since God's initial call to Abram to leave his home, 
This is the first time the word land is used to refer to anything other than the land of Canaan. 11 times previously since the beginning of chapter 12, five more times in our passage, more after that, the word is used. It always refers to the same thing. In the thought world of Genesis at this point, there is only one land, but not in the mind of Lot. What is the promised land? Well, for Lot, it sure isn't Canaan. He has found his land. You see, it seems that God's promises just weren't attractive to Lot. There's no sign here that he's even thinking about them. He doesn't care. And I think it's like that for a lot of people. Pastors will talk endlessly about knowing God and eternal life and forgiveness of sins. And for many people, that is the blah, blah of a bad salesman trying to get them to buy a car that they just don't want. They're not interested. God's promises don't seem great to them. They seem irrelevant. There may be some here today that frankly are not all that impressed with what God has to offer. Your hearts are elsewhere. Your desires are elsewhere. You're, you're not longing to experience the fulfillment of God's promises. Maybe you don't deny them, but if you're honest, you don't really care. Lot thinks the Jordan Valley is the promised land. Well, what's God's perspective? Verse 11, Lot journeyed east. And if you know Genesis at all, that sounds familiar. That was the direction Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden in chapter 3. That is the direction Cain went after killing Abel in chapter 4. Going east is not a good thing in the symbolic world of Genesis. It is the direction of movement away from God. We see in 12 and 13 that Lot goes to Sodom. And how does God feel about that? Well, we read, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Which is to say, God is not pleased. Listen, believing that you should obey, that you should follow God, that you should do certain things, that is plenty to make you a lawkeeper. But it is not enough to make you a believer. And many people are in this place. It's not so much that they would deny God's word as much as it is that they aren't that interested. You see, a believer is not somebody who thinks that they should follow God. A believer is somebody who wants to follow God. So do you know that the Bible is the word of God? Do you believe that God created the world and one day you will stand before him and give an account? Do you know that Jesus died to pay for your sins and rose again from the grave? I hope the answer to all of those questions is yes. But just knowing that stuff is not enough. Do you, do you know the truth in a way that has reshaped your desires? Do you long for God? Do you look with expectation to the fulfillment of what God has promised you? You could say it this way, is Jesus what you want? You see, the text says nothing about Lot rejecting the truth of God's call. It doesn't say anything about him not believing that God had sent them to Canaan. It's just not what he was interested in. And we have this kind of experience in little ways all the time, right? You experience something great. Maybe you go to a wonderful restaurant or you vacation in a beautiful spot or you read a book or see a movie that's just one of the greatest you've ever seen and you're excited. You, you run into your friend and you tell them all about it. You say, oh, this is amazing. You've got to go there. You've got to try this. You've got to read this. And so often, how do they respond? They say, yeah, wow. Okay, great. I'm going to look into that but you know they're probably not going to. Well, what's happening 
there. It's not that they don't believe you, right? They don't think you're lying. They just don't see what you see. They haven't experienced it. And frankly, they don't care about it as much as you do. And I think there are a lot of people in church who are like that with the promises of God. One of the greatest obstacles we have to choosing the promises of God is that our hearts are naturally fixated on other things. For some of us, it's not that we don't believe they're true. It's that we don't care. So what do we do about that? What's the answer? Well, fortunately, we have verses 14 to 18. And here we find the way forward. God shows us two things that help us become people who desire the promise of God. First, we have to explore the grandeur and abundance of his promises. Lift up your eyes and look, God says. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land. Meaning we have to actually spend time reflecting upon the things God has promised us. We have to think about them, explore them, talk about them, dwell upon them. God's promises are not simply something to believe in. They are something to savor. I, I really like basketball, the NBA in particular. And living overseas, I, I pay for something called NBA League Pass so that I can watch games online with my boys. And it's great. I'll plug my computer into our TV so we can watch the games on a big screen. And when you're watching a game and there's an amazing play, when, when someone does something truly remarkable, what always happens? Well, they show it again and again. They, they show it from different angles. They show it in slow motion. Why do they do that? I saw it the first time. I know what happened. Uh, but when it's my team that did it, I want to see it again. I want to savor it. And sometimes, even after they've already shown it four times, the boys will make me rewind so we can watch it again. And when you're doing it online, there's a little button you can press to watch it in slow motion. And sometimes, even when they're already showing it in slow motion, we'll still press that button so we can watch it in super, super slow motion. We want to take it in frame by frame. And that is what God is telling Abram to do with the promised land. Take it in. Soak it in. Check it out from every angle. God's promises to us are expansive. He tells Abram to look northward and southward and eastward and westward. He tells him, go through the length and the breadth of the land. He's saying, look, this place is big. You can't just take it in at a glance. There is a depth and a breadth to God's promises. There is a richness to them that can only be taken in through a lengthy exploration. So what are the things that enable you to lift up your eyes and see the promises of God? Actually answer the question, at least in your head, what are they? Do, do they exist? They, whatever they are, they need to be a regular part of your life. But there is another aspect that is equally critical if we are going to truly long for the promises of God. See, it's not just that we need to see how great and wonderful they are. We also need to see where they are found. There is an exclusivity to the promises of God, meaning they are contained in a particular place and they are not found outside that place. God says to Abram in verse 15, all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. That is the land of Canaan, where Abram settles in verse 12, the same land that God tells him to walk through in verse 17. 
So God says to Abram, lift up your eyes and look at the land. Arise, walk through the land. And right in the middle of that, he says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Or so say most of our English translations. And honestly, that is unfortunate. Because remember, it is the same word in Hebrew for land and for earth. God says, look at the land, walk through the land. I will make your offspring as the dust of the land. There is no way that Abram hears the word land there to be referring to the entire earth. The land in this entire section has been the land of Canaan. Look at the land, explore the land. You will have as many descendants as the dust of the land. God's not telling Abram you'll have as many descendants as the grains of the dust in the entire earth. He's saying you will have as many descendants as the grains of dust in the promised land. Now, why does that matter? It has nothing to do with how expansive the promise is. What I'm saying does not make the promise any smaller. Either way, the number of descendants is beyond Abram's ability to count. Now, it, it depends on grain size, but I, I looked into it. One cubic feet of earth has about one billion grains of sand or dirt in it. Now, if God tells you to count the number of grains in a land, uh, how deep are you supposed to go? I, I'm not sure, a kilometer, a hundred meters, just one meter. Let's be super safe and say we're only supposed to go down a foot, about 30 centimeters. Well, in that case, a square meter of land has about 10 billion grains of dust. Israel's about 20,000 square kilometers, which is about 20 billion square meters, which would be 200 quintillion grains of dust. That is 200 billion billions, a two followed by 20 zeros, an unimaginably large number. No matter whether the land is the land of Canaan or the entire earth, it is figurative for a number larger than our ability to imagine. God's promises to us are overwhelmingly large beyond comprehension. The significance of God saying that Abram's descendants will be as many as the dust of the land, not the dust of the earth, is not about how big the promise is. Either way, for all practical purposes, it's infinite. The significance is about where the promise is found. You see, Lot has left the land. And we already know that just from reading the story, but nonetheless, verse 14 still emphasizes that God speaks these words to Abram alone, not Lot. The text emphasizes that Lot is gone, separated from Abram, that Lot has moved outside the bounds of God's promise. You could put it this way. God's promises to his people are infinite in their abundance, but they are not found everywhere. There are more grains of sand in the promised land than Abram can imagine, but his promises are found in that land. God's infinite promise has a boundary. If, if you want to be able to truly and joyfully seek after God, you need to see that everything you desire is found exclusively within his promises. If you step outside his promises, you lose them. Now, why couldn't Lot be blessed in the land that he went to? Why the exclusivity? Well, because God had declared that the land of Canaan was the land of promise. No Canaan, no promise. And Lot was no longer in the land. In New Testament terms, as many as are the promises of God, they are yes in Christ. Sometimes people will ask me, why does salvation have to be only through Jesus? Couldn't God find some other way? 
And honestly, I don't know, uh, maybe, I'm not sure how many ways there are to pay for the sins of the entire world. I don't know another way than the death of God's only son. Um, but maybe God could have come up with something else. I'm not sure. Certainly, God could have chosen more than just the land of Canaan to be the promised land, but he didn't. He has provided salvation. He has given us amazing promises, but they are on his terms, in his place, in his way. And frankly, I think often when people object to that, it's because they don't really want what God has to offer. Imagine there was a car that you had always wanted. It was your dream car. And I've known about that for years. And after the service, I walk up to you and I say, look, I just inherited millions of dollars. I'm rich. I bought you that car you always wanted. It's brand new. Here are the keys. I had to park it about three blocks down the street that way. Go get it. Would you ever say to me, why'd you have to park it over there? Why couldn't you have parked it in the lot down that way? No, you don't care, right? If you want the car, you just run and go get it. The reason we object is because there are other things we want more. If God's promises are what you really want, then you will run to them. But if they're not, then all too often they will get in the way of what you're really seeking after. We are fools. Our greatest desires, our fullest joy, our most consuming contentment and pleasure, they are all found in the promises of God. As many as the dust of the land, billions of billions, blessing not just beyond our ability to comprehend, but beyond our ability to contain. It is all found in one place, but it is only found in one place. Arise. Lift up your eyes and take it in. If you are a Christian, you know that all of these Old Testament promises point forward to Christ and are fulfilled in him. As many as are the promises of God, they are yes in Christ. Explore the greatness of God's promises, but recognize they are only found in one place. If you see that, then you will see that God's kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a field, and you will sell all you have to buy that field. So how can you tell how you're doing? Verse 18, he built an altar to the Lord. Worship. Worship is the natural, the inevitable, the necessary response from someone who has truly seen what God has promised. This is one of the surest ways to tell that you are truly in the promise of God, and not just someone who happens to live your life in close proximity to his promise your heart will respond with thanks and praise to the one who has given you all that you could ever desire. So check yourself. Are you in God's promise? Are you exploring it and seeking it? Or are you just hanging around nearby while you're really seeking other things? Arise, lift up your eyes. The immeasurable blessing of God is found within his promise and his promise alone. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you are truly a great God and you are abundant in the gifts that you give us. And you have provided all we need for salvation and for life. So Lord, we ask that you would help us to open our eyes to see your goodness, to see the goodness of your promises and to run with whole hearts after you. We ask in Christ's name, amen.